Welcome to the Loving Lake Geneva podcast. I'm your host, Karen Stray Rappaport. Each episode, I take an outside-the-wake look at the area's most interesting people, places, and happenings. It's another great sunny day here in Lake Geneva, and the lake looks stunning, so let's jump right in. Today, we have with us Yvonne Wallace-Flain, who is the founder, along with her husband, Steve Blaine, of Fellow Mortals Wildlife, one of the largest wildlife hospitals in the state and in the nation, which started in 1985. Fellow Mortals is based on the belief that encouraging compassion in humans towards all life brings out the finest aspects of our humanity. And I just love this, as I think that's crucial for a flourishing environment and a compassionate world. Welcome, Avon. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on today. Of course. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your extremely busy day every day, but especially this time of year to talk with us. So if we could start with, you know, if you could just tell us a little bit about for fellow mortals, the facility, what kind of wildlife you have there, that would be wonderful. Sure. So um, just a little background. Uh, when fellow mortals began, it was because we had a situation with a rabbit's nest in our yard and a lawn mowing accident. And that situation is repeated hundreds, if not thousands of times every year by people just like me who have their first experience with a rabbit's nest and wildlife in their backyard. As it turned out, we could not find help for the little ones. And so my husband and I raised them. And one thing led to another, um, led to licensing because it is illegal to work with any kind of wildlife, whether it's a baby bunny or a deer or a sparrow or an eagle without licensing from the state and federal agencies. A lot of people don't know that. We didn't know it. So um, that's how Fellow Mortals started. And we really didn't have a plan to become anything big or long-lasting, but there is a real need in the world for people to have a place to go when accidents happen involving wildlife because you, you don't go to a veterinarian. These animals belong to all of us and to none of us, and so there isn't, you, you can't charge to provide care for a wild animal, and that's how wildlife rehabilitation really came to be, is there were private citizens willing to put their own resources and time into providing a public service. And wildlife rehabilitators everywhere, while they may, some have salaries, are donating much of their time and are entirely dependent on donations. There's no state or federal funding for wildlife rehabilitation at all. So that's how we got started. I, at the time, was going to school, my degree's in English, and I was planning to go on law school. I was a probate paralegal at the time. But this situation and experience changed my life and that both of us on a path we never could have imagined. So today, Fellow Mortals works with about 2,000 animals a year. We're licensed in both Wisconsin and Illinois for birds and in Wisconsin for mammals. We serve primarily the border counties and then in Wisconsin, Racine, Kenosha, Rock, and Walworth, as well as the entire state for beaver and the entire third of the state for white-tailed deer fawns. So this is um, starting our busy season. We already have many great horned owl babies in care, um, squirrels, rabbits. The migrating birds are coming back. We took in four yellow-bellied sapsucker females in one day, just a couple days ago. 
it's always always something different, always changing. And this year, we definitely have even more challenges because we're doing our work while practicing safe distancing with the public and uh, with each other here at the hospital. So facilities-wise, people can't really come and see what we do because we've always been a wildlife hospital. Our entire purpose is to provide a place for injured animals to heal and orphaned animals to grow up. And for that to happen properly, they need to not be tame and they need to not be stressed. And so the public only sees a small part of the hospital when they bring us an animal. And that's why we have so much information on our website. So you can get tours behind the scenes. We have one of the largest hospitals in the nation. We actually have uh, purpose-built quarantine rooms like they have at hospitals. And that's coming very much in handy with the pandemic because we have negative pressure space when we are taking animals in from the public so that we can protect their health and our health. We have pool habitats for beaver, heron, ducks, and, and eagles. We have um, two of the largest raptor flights in the nation, but all of this is just tucked away um, on a quiet road outside of Lake Geneva, and um, we just do what we do. I can see on your Facebook, you know, some little glimpses of what you do behind the scenes. And so, um, you know, there was a little video taking us in some of those rooms uh, the other day. And then there was this adorable picture of these two beavers that you're introducing. (laughs) So cute. And tell us about where they came from and how you're trying to acclimate them. So beaver are probably, well, they are the longest rehabilitation process that we that we undertake here at the hospital because beaver don't leave their home until they're two years old and they have to be strong enough and big enough to build a lodge and to store food for the winter they do not hibernate so they do need to eat during the winter months so when a baby comes into us it has to stay with us that long the um the one little female came to us last year she'll be a year in may she was found in the Wisconsin River and was separated from her family. And then we have a little male who came in the year before and he fell from the um, top of the Prairie Stack Dam and fractured a leg and broke a tooth. So the two of them have been in separate rehabilitation, but because they're opposite sex, we are introducing them so that we are hopefully going to be releasing them together next summer when they're both old enough and they would normally be in the wild. Beaver do better together. So that's the plan. We actually have another beaver now that's a two-year-old from Madison who was on his way away from his home lodge and was attacked. And so he's injured and he's in another part of the hospital. But it's very, um, you know, it, it takes a lot of time to introduce the beaver to each other. You have to be patient. You have to make sure that they actually are interested in each other because they're very strong animals and they obviously have a very strong bite because you can see what they do to the trees. So we don't want to make any mistakes because they could get hurt or we could get hurt, but we're feeling really good about these two and I think pretty soon they're going to be together. Beaver are being trapped out all over the state. I mean, in so many states and they're so critical to our environment. We are so short-sighted as humans. That's one thing about the pandemic that I'm really hoping might wake people up is that regardless of how much we think we're in control of the situation in the environment, we're not. 
And when we put things out of balance, boy, <laughs> we really do a good job. And these animals who are out there and coexist with us if we let them are all so important to the ecosystem. The beavers create wetlands, which creates habitat for other wildlife that can then breed, that can then help us control the insects that are out there that spread disease. So it really is a circle. And when we try to intervene and we try to manage something that we don't truly understand, we are causing problems for ourselves. I imagine the animals out in nature are probably having the best month of their lives right now, right? With so little human interference. I'm, I'm hoping so, but I have to say, I don't see much social distancing in the Lake Geneva area. I, I'm a little disappointed with that. The parking lot seemed to be full. Um, we definitely aren't going in anywhere and are being very safe here, but I just, I, I do wonder about all the activity I'm seeing in the area. Yeah, I know they've they've taken some measures to do, you know, because everybody from different states even, oh, let's go take a drive up to beautiful Lake Geneva and walk along the shore. And so I know that they have taken some measures to prevent that from happening. But um, so, you know, this is the season where many babies are going to be born, if not already. What are you seeing? I mean, the, you know, I see tree trimmers in the area. So I, we just had them in our yard and I, I looked first to make sure there were no nests. I was not going to let uh, trimmers into my yard uh, to touch anything with a nest in it. But, you know, for the birds, what are some preventative measures that people can take um, to not have to call you? And, you know, we know, we don't want them just showing up at your facility because so many times you can talk them through it or they can find information on your website about what to do, correct? That's right. And and actually, fellow mortals from the very beginning has been by appointment only. So we generally don't have people showing up here. We are like a doctor. We are very busy. We have as many as 500 animals in care at one time. Um, the rehabilitators uh, our day is 16 hours long and it is very carefully orchestrated because we're doing mammal feedings every four hours, sometimes every two hours. We have shifts that sometimes go into the night. If we have hand feeding birds, that's every 15 to 20 minutes, minimum 24 times a day. We cannot accommodate people just showing up for any reason. So they do have to call. We do have a sign out front that says by appointment only. What that means is that we are going to check our messages. We do not pick up the phone. We don't have a paid receptionist. Um, again, we're a charity, and so our small staff is all about animal care. So if someone finds an animal, what they need to do is give us a call, be patient, be wait, you know, keep the animal contained and in a safe place, and we will get back to people usually within the hour to let them know what to do. The thing is also that fellow mortals can't work with every single species. We work with over 150 species as it is. We don't work with predatory mammals here. So for coyote, fox, raccoon, badger, those we would be referring someone uh, to go somewhere else. And even for that first call, we want them to get expert advice from a rehabilitator that works with the species. For us, one of the big things is preventing those animals from being separated from mom for a couple of reasons. One, most importantly, for the wild parents or the wild mother, that's their whole life, is raising those babies. That's why they exist, is to raise their, you know, their replacements, so to speak. 
And so we never want to take the babies away from the mom. The other reason that we need to keep them out is because wildlife rehabilitation is a very limited resource. And just like hospital beds must be conserved for people who truly need them, it's the same thing for rehabilitation services. If we fill up with animals that are just found to be inconvenient, like someone who finds a rabbit's nest in their yard and doesn't want it to be there and thinks they can just remove it, then there's no place for the baby bunnies who truly are injured or orphaned. So a big thing for us is educating people to live with wildlife, to give them the chance to grow up and leave the area on their own. It doesn't take that long for baby bunnies to leave the nest. They're only in the nest for about three weeks. That's when they're weaned and they start to explore. So if we can keep those babies safe for that period of time, then they will leave the area. For squirrels that are in the nest, they're gonna be with their mom and they're weaned at eight weeks. They're gonna be with her, the first group until about mid-July. So we can just leave that tree. Please don't trim, please don't cut because there's nowhere for those animals to go except to try to find a place in your house or maybe in the engine compartment. When people complain about animals being in the wrong place, it's because we've removed their natural habitat. Same thing for birds. Um, in the case of the chimney swifts, which we also have in Lake Geneva, and we've released chimney swifts back into Lake Geneva when they come to us for care, they rely on those man-made structures and they're critical. All of those insectivorous birds are critical, again, for controlling disease because they control the insects that spread disease, primarily mosquitoes. So if somebody finds, you know, a baby that appears to be abandoned or injured, how, how do they know that it does need interference? And, you know, what do they do at that point? Okay, so we, we are totally accessible to people. We're seven days a week, we return phone calls. We have a website that has a plethora of information for people to read about wildlife, natural history, and first steps. It's not going to tell them how to care for animals because, again, you do need a license to do that. There's a lot involved in rehabilitation. But we want people to call us. If they have a question, we want them to call so that we can talk to them. And in fact, with every nest of baby bunnies, and we'll take in about 500 bunnies a year that are injured and orphaned, we will keep out at least as many that can be kept with their parents. So when a person finds something, the first step is they call. And then we're going to talk to them about their particular situation because every situation is different. We're going to send them information and, and some education materials, whether it's we do a lot of texting with people when we're working in a situation, we get videos or pictures from them and so forth, because we really want that animal to be safe. We're never gonna say to someone, leave it there, it'll be fine. We're not gonna say that unless we know that that is the case. And especially when it comes to fawns, which are going to start being born in May, it's very important that people understand that they need to call us and that what they're seeing probably is very natural because they're not going to see the mom with the baby. In May last year, we handled 100 calls in just one month with reports of fawns that people thought were orphaned. They were not orphaned, they were not abandoned, but it was a matter of understanding the natural history and then backing off so that that baby wasn't put in jeopardy. So we, we really want to talk to people. That's what it's all about. It's always about educating. That's why this opportunity to talk to you today, of course, 
this is, it's a gift. You know, the more that we can educate people, the more that we can do for the wildlife and keeping them safe. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, there's so much information out there, you know, people always hear, don't touch the babies. The mother will reject it. You know, is there truth to that? No, that's a, that's one of the oldest wives tales yeah. ever is that, um, and, and I think probably where it started is it was maybe a shorthand for people to get people to, to leave things alone, right? No, no, Sadie, don't touch that because mama won't come back. No, first of all, birds have very little sense of smell. Vultures have the best sense of smell in birds because, of course, they have to find carrion. But the mammals, their, their instincts are so much stronger than the fear of human scent. The problem is that when we touch an animal, say a fawn, I'll use as an example, we always tell people never touch without gloves. Why? Because our scent is imparted to that little animal and, that, and our scent then can be picked up by a predator like a dog or a coyote who otherwise is going to walk right past that baby. If we don't lay our scent on the wildlife, often it's protected. So it's really just, it's a matter of us learning to keep hands off, but the wild parents, they're not going to reject their young because we've touched them. It's just good sense and good practice to protect those babies from predators and also from putting our oils on some of the little birds like the ducklings. Once in a while, they do need to be rescued because wood ducks, for example, nest in trees in town. When they jump out of the tree cavity, that can be 40 feet up. And they sometimes get scattered because the mom and the babies will be interrupted by a dog or someone walking by or something like that. Babies sometimes have to be picked up, but we want to do that with gloves because if we get our oil on the feathers, the babies won't be waterproof. And then if the babies get into water, they're going to drown without being waterproof. Does that make sense? That is very interesting. I bet most There's people just, don't think of it that way or know that information. No, that's why that's why we um, rehabilitation is what we do. Education goes hand in hand with rehabilitation. You can't rehabilitate without educating, at, ne- at least not well. And every person who brings us an animal is going to learn about the animal that they brought to us and the species in that particular individual's condition. Um, but they're also going to learn more things about how to hopefully prevent the situation that has occurred to bring that animal to us or something else that will help them respect and appreciate the wildlife that's around them. I, I think the, the hardest thing for us is while we meet the most wonderful people, um, I would say 99% of the time, every so often, we do interact with people who just want an animal to be removed. And they do not understand that the animals live outdoors, you know? And if you have a cat, the cat needs to live indoors. Cats do so much damage to wildlife. And, um, you know, people will say, oh, my cat doesn't do that. My cat is old. My cat can't catch. It's slow. But I used to have outdoor cats before I knew better. And believe me, they do a lot of damage to wildlife. And when we have cats interacting with uh, baby animals or even adults, those animals have to come into care because almost always there's a puncture wound to scratch and it will become infected. So if, you know, some of the situations I've been in where urgency is, you know, is the urgency factor is there. Like, you know, one time I was driving on a road where, you know, the speed limit's 55 and there was a hawk just sitting in the middle of the road, just mm-hmm. sitting there. And so, you know, a couple other people stopped and 
we didn't know if it was safe to approach this bird. And finally we did, we wrapped kind of a coat around and moved it to the side and ended up flying away. So I don't know if he was just stunned or what, or a deer that's been hit and is sitting in the middle of the road and they're afraid to maybe call police because they're afraid, you know, of what's going to happen to the deer, but they can't get a whole, you know, a view that second. So what do people do if there's something in the middle of the road and is, is in extreme danger? Well, what people who people who care enough to want to do something about that should be prepared in their vehicle with a box, a heavy pair of gloves. I would say also a, like a, a a broom is really good because you never want to try to handle a wild animal. Even the gloves are just there as an extra precaution. We're not going to tell anyone to pick something up. When we tell someone to contain a squirrel, we're telling them to put a tote on the side and put, you know, like a light fleece blanket in the bottom of it and use a broom to gently push the animal into the tote. Um, if there's a hawk or something to throw a light blanket over it. And again, you're going to do everything hands off remotely. And to remember too, for people that rehabilitators, like I, I said earlier, are not, we're not paid for by your taxes. So if you think of it, that we happen to be like your neighbors who are here doing for you 365 days a year, whatever we can, we can't do it 24 hours a day because that's not physically possible. So what you need to do is just to be patient. And if you can contain the animal, leave a message and we will call you back, but we can't be everywhere, especially when we're covering, you know, multiple counties. So it does fall on the finder to at least contain the animal until they can get a hold of us so that something can be done. And to be patient and leave a message, what we, um, we can't do anything about situations where, for example, today we got a call, someone said his friend hit a vulture in Kenosha, which is, and I, I believe it was almost an hour away from us, and just reported it. We can't do anything about that. We don't have anyone to send out an hour away to get that bird because we're taking care of animals here. So if that person had stayed with the bird, left a message, we could have told them how to contain it and bring it to us and it could have gotten help. But we do need people to take responsibility. Uh, that's the part that the public needs to do. If the animal is going to get help, they need to be willing to act. And so you're seeing, you're starting to see the babies already this year, the squirrels and the birds? Yes. Um, we already have our first baby squirrels um, and no baby birds yet, but I know that they're in the nest because we've re-nested successfully um, house finches with the help of the people who found them. And also two young morning doves. We do have uh, five great horned owls. They're getting older now. Those are the first birds that are in the nest and then um, fledging. So and most where, of the where did the owls? Did somebody find them? Where did those come from? They're beautiful. Mm -hmm. I saw yeah, pictures. Yeah, they came, um, a couple came from our warden and then from all different homeowners. Sometimes when a um, one of the babies will fall from the nest and the way it works with owls is if the babies are at the age where they should be in the nest, they're not going to go down to the ground and feed them. They're going to look to find them where they should be, which is still in the nest. So when they get separated like that and we can't find the nest or we don't have a way to get the baby back because often the nest is 30 or 40 feet up in a pine tree, then those have to come into care. Or if we have an injured one, it has to come into care. So that's how we ended up with those this year. And 
Yeah, people just, they, they find things. Um, like I said the other day, we had four staff suckers come in all from different people. They were all moving back into the area. And in that case, they all hit windows. So this is a time of year for people to be aware that if they do have plate glass windows and the birds see the reflection, they're, they don't realize that they can't continue to fly. So it's really important to keep either bird feeders away from the windows to keep them from flying too close or to do something like put streamers outside of the windows to scare the birds away from that area. That can help. Um, another thing we're seeing is some territorial behavior already with the robins and the cardinals, you'll see it with turkeys. And they actually are, uh, they'll fight with their reflections in the glass. And the only way to stop that is to obscure that reflection. The easiest way to do that is to soap a window or to tape some cardboard or newspaper over that area just temporarily, because if the bird can't see its reflection, then it will stop fighting with itself. And it's amazing. I actually had that happen to me where I watched this bird and I mean, he was relentless yeah, <laughs> and would yeah. not stop. And I was like, he's going to hurt himself. But yeah, they do. They do sometimes. And what about, you know, one of the biggest complaints I hear are the woodpeckers. So mm -hmm. what can all of us who have wood siding <laughs> do uh -huh. to prevent the woodpeckers? You know, people get so frustrated and start having terrible thoughts about what to do with the woodpeckers. So how can we befriend them and, and make them, you know, go to the trees and not our house? Well, one thing is to not cut the trees down so they have some place to go, right? That seems like a, a simple thing, but believe it or not, we had a situation not that long ago where someone cut down multiple trees because he didn't want the branches falling. And you know that any of the woodpeckers in the area are now going to go to that nice cedar house that's there instead. But um, there's actually a product that we've been referring people to for years, and it's called Ropel. And there are other similar products, and it's a taste repellent, so it's not going to hurt the woodpecker, but you can spray it on siding, and it does last through rain, and it, it keeps the birds from wanting to poke holes because they get this nasty taste on their tongue when they're trying to poke holes in your wood. So that's one of the things that we would suggest. Do the streamers and things like that work for them too, or not as much? Yeah, the streamers can work because if they, you know, they're not going to want to be poking a hole there where that's blowing back and forth. And it's not as easy for them to get used to something like that as it is to, say, a stationary owl. They really don't seem to do too much. Birds are smart and they understand pretty quickly if something isn't changing. And so they become used to it or habituated to it. So it's really better to have a, a number of things going on. There's um, there's techniques too, not so much for that, but say for example, someone has something in their attic, if they have squirrels there or they have raccoons, there are ways to make them uncomfortable to leave on their own because you don't want a live trap this time of year. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it any time of year, but this time of year is not the time to live trap. There are families all over, wild families all over. There's no place where you can just pick, you know, one family up and, and move it somewhere else where that area isn't already occupied. So they're not going to be allowed to stay there. And animals that are moved like that very often are killed trying to get back to their home. 
I mean, they have a home base just like we do. And, and I think it is proper to anthropomorphize in this situation that it's no different than if we took you, for example, Karen, and said, you know, let's move you somewhere else. Here's a nice place for you to live. This house looks really fun and no one's in it. Well, maybe they're on vacation. They come back and Karen's in their house and you're not going to be allowed to stay there. And that's what's happening when we move wild animals around. The other thing that happens is so often people don't know the natural history of the species. They don't realize the babies have already been born. And so now they've orphaned those little ones and, and they die in their house or under the house. So the baby woodchucks are, they either have been born or they will be born soon. And so people that talk about moving woodchucks out from their gardens, those babies are deep underground in a nest. And if something happens and that mother is live trapped and taken away, they're certainly going to die. You know, that's great information because a lot of people think, you know, if they can just get them out, they will live happily ever after somewhere else. And that's, no. I think, almost always not the case. No, so. and, and what has to happen, we all have these situations. I mean, we have, we live in an old farmhouse. It's over 100 years old. And we have to keep replacing the uh, fascia because the squirrels like to go into that area. But that's our responsibility as homeowners is to keep that in good repair. And the other thing that we do is we have a sonic up in our attic so that it scares the animals so they're not going to want to nest there. So we have to be proactive. If you live in the country, there are going to be wild animals, even if you live in, in town, because many of the owls and hawks uh, that we get actually do come from pretty populated areas. And I love, so I back up on two, I'm on top of a cliff and then, then there's a bunch of woods behind me. So I am hearing the coyote like crazy these days. And mm -hmm. then um, in a couple months, I start to hear the fox, which it's the most, when I first heard these fox back there, they, I, I thought somebody was being killed back there. You know? and, <laughs> yeah. and then I, <laughs> I kind of read up on it. And I, I mean, they're noisy animals, right? Both the coyote and the fox. But when, some people are afraid they're going to hurt their dogs or their children. Can, can, are they ever a threat to us? The, um, we, don't, we don't work with the predators here, but I have never had an experience where someone said that they were felt frightened by or, or threatened um, by a fox or a coyote. And they're so very important too, to keeping things in balance. So if people don't want to have, you know, too many rabbits or they're worried about seeing too many rabbits around, um, it's likely because we don't have a balance of the predators. And the red fox and the coyote generally are not going to be in the same place. So we haven't seen as many red fox lately in areas where the coyotes um, are, but then the coyotes also are, are, as much as we don't like to think about what they do, they're also part of the balance of nature. And I would say, I think with, the, with both of those animals, there's a couple of places that I would refer you to maybe for a future podcast. Um, there are people who specialize in the care of predatory mammals, which we don't do here. And uh, Flint Creek Wildlife Rehabilitation, takes care of them in Illinois. And then here in Wisconsin, Pineview Wildlife Rehabilitation specializes in the care of predatory mammals. And so both of those are resources. When we get a call about, um, you know, one of those species, we will refer them out because we know that they're going to get great advice.
And I know Flint Creek has taken some coyote that were um, caught in downtown Chicago and very busy areas. So like you say, it's not always, you know, wildlife isn't just for, I mean, it's everywhere. And as you say, we've moved on to, into their territory. So they're, they're doing mm -hmm. the best that they can. Um, but we and they're beautiful, everywhere. beautiful animals. I, I rescued one once that was hit by a car um, in the area here and just, I mean, it's pretty awesome to see them up close, but it's really great for rehabilitators when they can to specialize in certain things because there's every different species requires different housing, habitat, knowledge, experience, and nutrition, you name it. And so it's, it really is not possible to do everything and do it well. One thing that I, I see on social media a lot is people, you know, they love to watch the whole process of the the bird laying the eggs and the babies being born. And some people actually put like cameras up, you know, so that they can watch it all the time or they're checking on them every day. I mean, what's your opinion about things like that and how they might interfere with um, the birds? Well, you know, I haven't, Honestly, I haven't thought about that that much, but I would think that if, if it's a little button camera in a nest box, I don't imagine it would have any effect on the process of what was going on. I think when people are going physically to check on a nest box, um, that would certainly be something that would possibly cause upset. So I would never recommend that. Just like when we're renesting rabbits, we go through a process with people to mark the nest and we ask them to check the next morning. And sometimes if we're not sure if mom has come back, we might have them look at the babies. But once that's done and we know that mother's back, we don't want them to go back to that nest again. So I think it's great to observe if you can do it without causing any kind of disturbance to the animal itself. Yeah. We don't have much time to do <laughs> to look at any of that stuff. Here. Right, right. Of course, you're living it. You don't need to work yeah. on social media. <laughs> Can you just tell us a little bit about um, how many people and and you know what kind of staff you have there? And and I know that you do have some volunteers, but um, your your staff who cares for the animals are paid and trained and but you need donations to do this and i know you're you're really one of the ones leading the way in in wildlife rehabilitation trying to be a role model and doing it doing it right so who who makes up your staff all right well again i'm going to give you a little background so when i i when i started um down this path and I saw some of the large rehabilitation facilities. I, I worried that the little animals weren't, weren't maybe going to get the same consistency of care as I was able to give when I first started out because I knew those little ones so well and I was watching them every single day. And so once we decided that we were going to build a wildlife hospital, my husband and I, we knew that what we wanted to do is bring in more full-time professionals so that we could handle more animals, but give them that same kind of home-based care. Just like if you are getting care from, say, a person's in a hospital and they see the same nurse, that gives a sense of continuity and you feel like you are, 
you, there's a consistency there. And I think that that creates a type of peace and some alleviates some of the stress that you have with too much activity and change. So we had to bring in other people once we started to get more animals because we, Steve and I could not provide that care by ourselves. So we started an intern program in 1992. And from the intern program over that period of time, we built our staff. Karen McKenzie joined us in 2003. She moved here from Scotland, from Robert Burns' hometown, actually, um, to be our first full-time staff member. Jessica Macero moved to Wisconsin, to Lake Geneva, from Thunder Bay, Ontario, to become our second full-time staff member. And Amy Sasenko moved here from New York State, and she's been with us since 2012. So our staff has been built from interns who have really embraced the life, which is, uh, it is really a way of life when you rehabilitate the way we do. We work um, average 70 hours a week. We do work five days a week with two days off, but we're very immersed in the process. And our interns who come to us every year, and I have six that I'm really hoping can come. We're waiting for the Safer at Home order to be lifted so that we can bring these people in from out of state. But our interns are critical to helping us provide care for the hundreds of animals that come in. So they are working a good 60 hours a week. These are all students, um, recent graduates or their college students specializing in wildlife related fields. And they need some hands-on experience to accompany that formal training that they have before they go on to whatever career they're going to pursue. And then that's our animal care uh, component. As far as volunteers go, we have some volunteers that help in the reception area. So helping greet the people, return phone calls, the uh, rehabilitator triages every phone call. We're giving the advice, but we have a volunteer who's relaying that advice to the public and is there too to take the information and to make sure that they feel acknowledged and appreciated for what they have done. Uh, it's just, it's important to us. That's our client care. Even though we're a nonprofit and we're not a business, we compassion, the, the, whole, the whole purpose is to inspire compassion and we need to be compassionate towards people and to appreciate them if we want them to appreciate wildlife. So, we're pretty, we're pretty small um, and pretty close as a, a group and an organization, but there's always room for people who want to help us with our fundraising events or maybe with reception in the summer with helping to re-nest animals, you know, helping to set up tables to educate, to do supply drives, that type of thing. And you have a, um, a veterinarian on staff? No, not well, not on staff. We have several associated veterinarians. So wildlife rehabilitators, like I said, um, wildlife rehabilitation exists because there isn't a place for the wild animals to go when they're injured or orphaned. There's no one who can who would pay veterinarians to take care of them. That would have to be the state or federal government. That's how wildlife rehabilitation really came about, is that people were doing the best they could, but then there became a system for licensing people so that they were actually trained and knowledgeable about what they were doing. And Steve and I were part of that because we saw from our experience of learning as we went that that isn't the way it should be. Um, there can be things that happen to animals that um, aren't humane. 
If a person who doesn't know what they're doing tries to feed an animal the wrong way, they can kill it. If they feed the wrong food, they can make it sick. Um, if they're not familiar with the different diseases that can be passed from animal to human, it's, um, you know, we can have problems. Um, rabies is probably the most, the one that most people recognize and, and are aware of. And so rehabilitators have their rabies um, vaccinations so that we can handle animals and, and if we do get bitten, we can have our titer checked, but we are preventing a lot of those things. We've always had in place here at the hospital personal protective equipment because we wear gloves. We make sure that we disinfect our uh, equipment. We have different clothes that we wear at the hospital. We have different shoes that we wear at the hospital because we are aware of fomites and how disease can be transferred, which is why when you know COVID-19 came on the scene, we were already prepared to some extent because we're already working that way. We're always washing our hands, always thinking about transfer and cross-contamination. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's it's my hope, and I know yours too, that after this is over with COVID-19, that if if we've learned a lesson that we can live a little more lightly on the earth, that would that would be great. Yeah. And, so um, you mentioned a few ways that people can help, you know, with fundraising. Um, if somebody just wants to give you a, a donation, I'm sure every time, you know, that you help somebody, hopefully they would give you a donation there. But, but I, I mean, you can't be there to do everything that you've talked about without donations. So if they, what's the best way if somebody just wants to give you a, a, a donation today? Well, they could go to our website and there's a donate button and it makes it very easy to donate however they they would like to. Um, we have something called Team Hope that's our recurring donors and we're working on building that. These are people who donate $5 a month. Some people donate um, a lot more than that, but those donations make it possible for us to be here no matter what. One of the things that I say is our hands do the work of your hearts. And what that means is that those gifts make it possible for us to say, sure, we'll take care of that animal. There is not a price tag attached to what we do, and we do not require a donation to provide our services. But most people don't donate when they bring us the animal. That's the fact. And if they do donate, it's maybe 10% of what the cost will be. I mean, to raise a baby great horned owl to release is over $500 to treat a lead poisoned bald eagle or loon is over a thousand dollars just to feed a baby bunny one baby bunny the formula is $50 and then there's all the time that goes into that so we really um, we are glad and we're humbled to be able to be here and to say we will help no matter what but the only reason that's possible is because of the people who donate to us and we are very blessed we um sometimes i don't know how we have been here for third this is our 35th year unbelievably we're um, consistent care we've been here every day um for people who need us and over 50,000 animals in that period of time and it really it's it's we do this together even though the people aren't here at the hospital if you are a donor you are part of fellow mortals you're part of making this world better because we're we're showing people that compassion does make a difference. We're showing people that you don't have to turn away. And that was something that we realized early on 
is that if, if you find an injured animal, you have nowhere to go. Something in your heart has to close. For you to be able to go on living, you have to be able to turn away. But that's a, a terrible thing. when We have to turn off that compassion and we have to close our eyes. And we don't want anyone to ever have to do that. So if we can't help you here, we're going to try to find you someone who can if it's a, a species we don't work with. But really, it's a very holistic approach that we try to take. And I think that's why we're still here, because we're not trying to make our path. We're following the path that's being laid out for us. Well, you're amazing, Yvonne, <laughs> and I hope that we can expand your donor base today And um, because I, I don't know how you do everything you do, listening to the numbers that you are up against just on a daily basis um, is incredible, and, um, and that you still sound so positive and loving, because <laughs> <laughs> I imagine it gets frustrating at times. Well, we, I don't know, I, I, I don't know, but I... I do still love what I do and I, and I, um, I enjoy what I do. We've got a newsletter coming out um, in a couple of weeks that we hope is going to make people happy. And um, if anyone would like to be added to our mailing list, there's things in the newsletter that you're not going to find on our website or Facebook. Um, this time around, we have a special column written by a guest columnist, Mary Bolden, who's written for Chicago Audubon and some other magazines. It's all about living with wildlife in your garden. So if anyone wants that, all they have to do is email us at wildrehab at fellowmortals.org and let us know their mailing address, and I'm happy to send that to them. We'll put that up um, on the website, too, fellowmortals.org, so people can find you easily. And thank you so, so much. I know you have to get back to caring and feeding and everything that you do. Your day is far from over, right? At, at <laughs> right. At the election, we'll, we'll be <laughs> it's done. just yeah. beginning. But, and I'd love to talk to you again about fawns when the time comes, um, because that is a, that's really a big, we really have to push to keep those babies in the wild. They appear so fragile. And, you know, I understand that people don't want to leave them where they are, but it's what needs to happen. And we can make them feel better about about backing off and uh, and ho hopefully help them understand what the process is. And when are we going to start to see the fawns? Uh, May, May. Okay, so, so pretty soon, pretty soon, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, yes, I would love to talk to you again. I could talk to you for hours. Um, but thank <laughs> you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity. Of course. And as always, thanks to the listeners for letting me share my love of Lake Geneva, the natural beauty, the crystal clear waters, the sunshine and the sunsets, but most of all, the very special people who make a difference like Avon. I'm Karen Stray Rappaport. Join me next time as another guest takes their place in the sun. Bye for now. I feel all right, like the